Hello, everybody. This is Volts for September 13th, 2023. Getting more out of the grid we've already built. I'm your host, David Roberts. One of the primary threats to the clean energy build-out spurred by the Inflation Reduction Act is a lack of transmission. Models show that hitting our Paris climate targets would involve building two to three times our current transmission capacity, yet new lines are desperately slow to come online. Meanwhile, existing lines are congested and hundreds of gigawatts of new clean energy sits waiting in interconnection queues. Wouldn't it be cool if there were some relatively cheap and speedy ways to get more capacity out of the transmission infrastructure we've already built to ease some of that congestion and get more clean energy online while we wait for new lines to be completed? As it happens, there are. They are called grid-enhancing technologies, or GETs. And they can improve the performance of existing transmission lines by as much as 40%. It's just that, in the U.S. at least, utilities aren't deploying them. They've been tested and deployed all over the world, but the U.S. system has resisted using them at scale. I contacted Julia Selker, head of the Working for Advanced Transmission Technologies, or WATT, coalition, a GETS trade group, to discuss exactly what these technologies are, their enormous potential to ease grid congestion, why utilities still resist them, and what kinds of policies can help move them along. So, uh, with no further ado, Julia Selker, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. This is, (laughs) to me, a very uh, exciting topic that is, like many exciting topics in the world of energy, somewhat obscured behind a wall of jargon and technical (laughs) technical sounding terms. So we're going to do our best up front to decode some of this and lay it out in a simple way so people can grasp it. But before we get to gets, before we get to the gets, let's talk just a little bit about the need here, the need for more capacity on the transmission system. Run down a little bit, because I know you've done or have been involved in some research on grid congestion and things like that. Give us a little rundown of why this topic is so important right now. Yeah, absolutely. The United States is basically desperate for transmission capacity. And there are a few ways that we see that in, in data. And one is transmission congestion. So this is a quantification of Uh, the cost of a transmission constraint. So if you don't have enough transmission to deliver the cheapest electricity, you'll then have to turn on a thermal generator or something uh, more expensive than a wind or solar generator, for instance, and that will uh, increase costs for consumers. So back in the day, uh, let's say 2016, the market monitors found $3.7 billion of congestion in the regional transmission organizations and the independent system operators that actually transparently report congestion data. Uh, And if you scale that to the whole U.S., we're looking at about $6.5 billion in congestion in 2016. But in 2022, the national number was over $20 billion in congestion. $20 billion. $20 billion. 
it's rising astronomically and it makes sense. Like there's more low cost generation available. Gas prices are going up. So the redispatch cost is, is another term for this is going to get higher as you have to curtail more renewables and dispatch more expensive generation because there's just not enough transmission to deliver all the clean energy. So we also see this in clean energy interconnection costs and delays. Back when there was a lot of headroom on the grid from large-scale infrastructure expansion back in the day, the projects could interconnect at lower costs and with faster timelines. But now projects are seeing bigger and bigger upgrades. All that headroom is used up and projects are, are seeing tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in transmission upgrades that need to happen in order for them to interconnect to the grid. Volt's uh, listeners will uh, recall just a few weeks ago had a pod on interconnection queues, and they'll recall that sort of you get in a single file line, and if you happen to be the project that triggers a need for a transmission upgrade, that whole cost gets added to your project, which you know renders many projects unviable. And that's just happening more and more often now because the grid is more and more congested and there's more and more upgrades needed. So it's making that process take longer too. Yeah, and beyond the cost, I've heard from clean energy developers that they are looking at seven years to actually make the transmission upgrade, or in one case, four years to schedule an outage to begin construction. So (laughs) that's not sustainable at all. And there are policy actions that are taking place to try to make these processes more efficient, but the fundamental issue is there's not enough transmission capacity and we need to be finding it fast. There's no way to fiddle with processes enough to get around that, which is just, there's just not enough transmission capacity. Exactly. Given all that, we need more transmission capacity. New transmission capacity takes forever to build in the U.S., which is a problem a lot of people are working on. But, you know, even reforms look like they're years out and then, you know, more years out to build the new lines. So here we have then this set of technologies that can help us get more transmission capacity out of the existing grid, the GETs, the uh, grid-enhancing technologies. So let's talk about first what counts as a GET, (laughs) and and let's run through uh, the big ones. Sure. So there are some practical reasons that certain technologies would fall under the GETs category, and there are some policy reasons too. So um, I'll cover both of those, but the items that we think about are, does this technology make use of the dynamic capabilities of the grid to increase transmission capacity? That's sort of the practical category. So we're used to thinking about transmission lines, transformers, substations, we install them, and they have these set capabilities that are based on really conservative assumptions. And when you have digital technologies and high-tech communications, you can actually monitor these assets and make more efficient use of them depending on grid conditions. And another value we look for from a technical perspective is the redeployability. So if you build a new transmission line, great, you have a new line right where you put it. But with these technologies, you can use them as stopgap measures if you have a big line under construction and you want to reduce costs in the interim, or you're expecting grid topology or you know the grid <laughs> grid assets to change or or increase but you're not sure how it's still kind of a zero regrets option because you deploy it it pays for itself quickly and you can move it later 
Right. So redeployability just means you can put it on a line. And if you don't need it on that line anymore, you can take it off that line and put it on another line. It's not a permanent addition to a line. But it could be, certainly. <laughs> There's no expiration date, but uh, the flexibility is Right. Nice. You can leave it on, but you can move it if you need to. Right. And so given those parameters, let's walk through the three big ones. The first one helps elucidate something you said, I think. The first one is called dynamic line ratings. So I think the important background for people to understand here is today you build a transmission line, you have a you know the transformer and the line, the familiar pieces of infrastructure, and basically a grid operator has to know how much energy can I push through that line. And to come to that number, they make some estimates about you know how much will the line sag if power is going through it? What are the sort of ambient weather conditions typically in this area, you know, so they do these estimates to come up with a capacity estimation for that line. And the grid operator uses that estimate. But of course, because these are estimates that you're doing sort of in advance, you have to be very conservative, right? You have to be careful that your estimates are not on the high end so that you don't overload the line and blow stuff up. So, all of which adds up to the fact that existing transmission lines typically only use like 30 to 40% of their capacity. Is that right? Just out of sort of an abundance of caution because you just don't know specifically in real time what's going on in that line. Is that roughly correct? Yeah, so historically, a lot of transmission lines use a static line rating, so... They'll assume it's going to be a hot day and that there's not very much wind. The, the wind has the highest impact on the cooling of a transmission line. So they're like, okay, right. this is how much the line will be cooling and this is how much the current would heat that line and that's our limit. But they might use that limit year-round, uh, even in the winter. So transmission owners have been updating to seasonal ratings. That's an improvement. FERC is requiring lines to use ambient adjusted ratings, which will take into account temperature by 2025. But like I said, dynamic line ratings also include wind. They're at a more granular level, so they, they might be updated every 15 minutes, for instance. Right. So dynamic line ratings, if I could just back up, dynamic line ratings just means you attach something on the line that will give you real-time information about those conditions that you were previously estimating on a seasonal or yearly basis. Yeah, it could be on the line itself. It could be on the transmission tower looking at the line with LIDAR. It could be a, a weather station, too. It could even be in the fiber optic cables that are strung on the same towers as transmission lines. Those are really good temperature measurement tools as well. So there are lots of different approaches to dynamic line ratings, uh, and they're not just real time. They're also forecast, which is really important because when you're making your dispatch decisions, you know, the day ahead forecast is critical and maybe even further ahead. So that's one of the major values of DLR. Once you've had the sensor on your line for a few weeks or months, you know how the line heats and cools and you can use those forecasts. Right. So, you know, long story short, by getting more real-time data about the conditions around a line and reliable forecasts about the condition of the line, basically grid operators can get closer to the actual capacity of these lines rather than stopping so far short out of caution. So how big is that delta between, say I was using a yearly 
static yearly rating for a line, and then I shifted to DLR. So I was getting real-time information about that line and good forecasts. How much more, theoretically, can I push through that line once I have DLR attached? Yeah, so in one 2021 deployment across three states, DLR exceeded static reference ratings by 9 to 33% in winter and 26 to 36% in summer. And so that's a big range, of course, but you're still looking at big capacity increases. And also the, the fact that the summer, the extra capacity found in summer was higher kind of shows that they were probably using seasonal ratings and the the summer rating was very, very conservative in terms of heating. Mm-hmm. But then in this same case study, the DLR actually found 15% of hours, they either matched the static rating or was below the static rating. So your DLR also shows you in cases of extreme weather, for instance, whether you should be running less power along the line. And if we're dealing with weather patterns like heat domes and these you know, unprecedented uh, situations, that's when that kind of monitoring could be really life-saving. Right, because even with the caution of static ratings with extreme weather, you might exceed even those bounds. Right. So basically, DLRs can tell you what's really going on. So that's somewhere from 9 to 33% more transmission of power through the same line through the addition of DLRs. Right. More or less. <laughs> and then the second one... <laughs> even nerdier sounding, advanced flow power control. What do we mean by this? Yeah, so uh, there are existing technologies that utilities use to control power flow, but the advanced ones are, are just that much better. Basically, these are devices that go at the substation between the generators and the load, and often in that pathway, you'll have multiple circuits that could deliver power. Uh, but power likes to follow the path of least resistance, we say. Technically, it's impedance, which is a combination of resistance and other items. But advanced power flow control can adjust that impedance to push and pull power over different circuits. So say you have one circuit that's just maxed out 100%. You have two circuits that are more like you know 20 30%. You can push that power off of the maxed out circuit onto the others, and then you can actually add generation behind them. One of my theories about this is that the sort of average person on the street, you know, their their familiarity with technology is mostly around the internet and phones and stuff like that and digital stuff. And I just think the average person on the street probably, if they have thought about it at all, thinks in their head that the people controlling the grid just have much more fine-grained digital level control than they actually do. But like the standard practice now is for the power to just go the way it goes based on physics. And if it, you know, runs into a congested line, you're just screwed. So this is like the advance here is just you can push power where on your system it needs to go based on availability, which seems so such a rudimentary level of control. It's a little wild that it's new. It's a little wild that we didn't already have that, I think. Yeah, there are sort of analog approaches to all of these gets in terms of, you know, there are ways that you can reroute power manually by flipping switches, or you can use emergency line ratings instead of dynamic line ratings where you say, okay, I could run more power for two hours or 15 minutes. But 
we have the technology to do that more strategically. And that means you can do it every day instead of in these sort of emergency situations. Right, right. And you can do it, I presume, much faster digitally than you can by running around physically throwing switches. Right. And so the third of the big three here is topology optimization, the nerdiest sounding one (laughs) of all. So I think people are familiar with topology, like a topological map shows you heights, basically, shows you elevations. So in grid terms, the topology of a grid is just sort of, you know, the equivalent of elevation in that sort of like power will go, quote unquote, downhill towards, the uh, uh, you know, the easiest place to go. That's the topology of the grid. So what does it mean to optimize that topology? Basically, it gives you sort of a map of everything that's going on on the grid, all of your power lines, all of your generators, all of your load. And topology optimization software lives with the system operator or other entities could use it. But they can say, oh, we, ha- we see congestion here. What are our options for reducing it? And one example is you might see congestion on line A. And if you switch off line B, that actually balances everything out so that line A is no longer overwhelmed. So it's, it's counterintuitive sometimes, and that's why we need software to do it. Uh, because today, transmission owners would undertake reconfigurations, as they're called, manually by flipping switches, but it's just based on operator experience, whereas the software lets you actually <laughs> look at all of the options, all of the interventions, and quickly assess the system impacts. Because the other thing is, you know, like I said, it's counterintuitive. You it takes the math to figure out exactly what's going to happen when you switch something off. Right. Especially as these things get more and more complex, you know, the, the, the amount of interactions involved. I mean, again, not to, not to beat this point to death, but it's just wild that like today grids are run by like, you know, Bob who, <laughs> who knows, who just knows, knows this grid because he's rode this horse for 20 years and he knows its quirks and he's going around physically throwing switches trying to get things to work smoothly. It's just so much more analog, I think, that people have it in their heads that these things work. So so this just replaces Bob's intuitions with uh, software, basically, that analyzes the shape of the grid and can come up with solutions for which switches to throw that will maximize the smooth performance of the grid, basically. Yes. Yeah. And it's worth acknowledging that when we had a bunch of thermal generators that operated, you know, really consistently, that we knew their costs, we, right. uh, th- there wasn't this variability. You didn't have to be so dynamic in your operation of the grid. But the fact is we're moving into a new era and that means that the dynamic capabilities of the grid will absolutely be very valuable. So for instance, topology optimization could uh, reduce congestion costs in PJM by uh, 50% in one study, just by reconfiguring the grid, depending on 50%. Right. And that was $2.5 billion in 2022. That was the congestion in PJM. Good grief. That's a large number. (laughs) The grid's getting more complicated, not just because variable renewables are coming online, but also like distributed renewables. So like distribution grids are going to start becoming producers also. And once you get that level of complexity, then you're just way, you quickly get way beyond what any one person can intuit, no no matter how long they've worked with that grid, right? At that point, you need software. Definitely. So um, 
These are the big three that I always hear discussed when people talk about grid-enhancing technologies. Dynamic line ratings, which sort of watch the line and tell operators what's going on around that line in real time and what's going to be going on around that line in the next day or two so that grid operators can increase the throughput of those lines. And there's advanced flow power control, which allows you to move power around as it moves through the grid to the least congested areas. And then there's topology optimization, which is sort of um, optimizing power flow through the grid at a system level, You know, which as we say is getting increasingly complex and requires software. These are the big three. Are there other, you know, sort of like the, the category of things that could help the grid work better? <laughs> Seems pretty capacious. Are there other technologies that sort of qualify or that are around the periphery here? Or is it just those three? Yeah, I'm not as, as much of an expert in the other options, but energy storage can be deployed as a type of power flow control. Basically, if you site your batteries at the substation, they can inject power or, or consume power strategically in a way that also changes power flow. Uh, so that could count. And then other technologies that increase transmission capacity much faster than you know, building new infrastructure. There's reconductoring with high-performance conductors and superconductors potentially, tower raising. There are these other technologies, but they're more, they don't have that dynamic aspect to them that, mm. that GETs have. And then GETs are also very low cost, very low cost. We'll get into that, I'm sure. But reconductoring a line is a level of capital expenditure and, and a type of technology that utilities understand and they're ready to use. Right. Can we just pause to define reconductoring? Is that just literally replacing the line itself, the actual wire itself? Yeah, exactly. With just better wire, better, <laughs> higher higher capacity wire? Yeah, there, there are a few different types of technology, but a, a basic way that you would increase capacity would be to use a stronger core in your transmission line. So right now, most lines have steel cores. And steel, when it heats, gets a lot weaker. Right. If you're using a composite core, then you won't have that sag that the steel would have, and it can withstand a lot higher temperatures. Right. So that gets you somewhat higher capacity with the same sort of towers, but it, as you say, it's not the kind of dynamic real-time control that sort of characterizes the other gets. And I think for our purposes, we can just sort of slot energy storage under advanced flow power control, since that's basically what you can use storage for in this instance, is helping power move around more rationally through the grid. Just on this side, we usually say advanced power flow control. Advanced power flow control. So is APFC the... Yes. The <laughs> <laughs> All right. Advanced power flow control. Yeah, that makes more sense. I don't know where I... I don't know why my notes have it backwards. Advanced f power flow control. None of these, none of these trip off the tongue. <laughs> so I think the next question, the obvious question is, you know, the numbers you cite in terms of increased capacity that you can get out of these things are pretty like mind boggling. Like DLR can get you up to 33% more capacity. Topology optimization reduces congestion costs by 50%. Like these are, I mean, this is the point I want to emphasize most in this pod is that these are not marginal gains here necessarily. Like you can get big chunks, big amounts of new capacity with these things. So how much do they cost relative to, say, 
reconducting, putting new, better wire through, or building a new line? Like, how? What's the sort of cost scale here? Yeah, well, the fun and frustrating thing about Gets is it's it's hard to generalize. Every deployment will have a different value, different payback right. period. Some places are windier. Sometimes there's a hill in the way. What have you? That's why these ranges will be big. But I, I have some good examples in terms of cost. So, for instance, PPL Electric Utilities just won the Edison Electric Institute's Edison Award, the 95th award for their deployment of DLR. They're the first utility to deploy DLR in markets, in operations. The first U.S. utility to do that? Yes. Wild. Yes, <laughs> in, in 2023. Whereas Belgium it was all over in 2008. So we're a few 2008? years behind. Yes. So these are not new, like DLR, for instance, is not new, not brand new technology. No, it's getting better every year, so that you know there's, right. there's a benefit there. But it, we're we're way past due to bring it into common practice. But PBL's uh, sort of flagship deployment, they had a line that was seeing 23 million dollars of congestion a year, and they could fix it by rebuilding uh, a price tag of 50 million dollars. Uh, so that's a, a little over two years payback. That's not bad for transmission, certainly. But the instead used DLR, which cost a quarter million dollars. <laughs> and so that that's a big cost savings. And when you talk about the payback period, you know, it's it's infinitesimal. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That's a quarter of one million dollars rather than fifty million dollars to build new new lines. That's quite a delta. Exactly. And so we, we often talk about net savings. So a deployment of advanced power flow control devices saved $70 million in congestion costs over a three and a half year transmission outage. So that's a net savings. I don't know how much the deployment cost, but you know, $70 million is, is not jump change for one deployment. And uh, another widespread deployment of advanced power flow control in the United Kingdom saved half a billion dollars in production cost savings by enabling new renewable energy and then also in avoided investments in new infrastructure. So half a billion dollars for like 50-odd power flow controllers. That's wild. So huge potential savings here, relatively cheap to install. One thing I'm a little curious about is, what do these physically look like? <laughs> like what is, what, is the, what is the physical process of installing, say, DLR? Like how, how long would it take and how disruptive would it be for a, a utility to go put DLR on a, on a particular line? Yeah, like I said, there are multiple approaches to DLR. So there are some that would require no outage at all. Huh. Uh, so if you're installing a sensor on your tower that's looking up at your line, or if you're using the fiber optic cable, then you don't have to take an outage. And you immediately start getting data about the line temperature and ambient conditions, and then as I understand, it takes a few weeks for that data to give you the right like information for forecasting. But you know, you're you're in business within months. And the sensors that go on the line, it's not that big of a difference. I think you do need a short outage to put a sensor on the line, but very short. It, you know, it takes a couple hours in, in a helicopter <laughs> um, to install the sensors. So again, you'll you'll be in business in months and you'll see that uh, 30, 40% increase. And it also corresponds, of course, to when wind generation is highest. If you're, if the wind is cooling your line, then it's also spinning your blades. <laughs> right. 
And what about advanced power flow controls? I imagine there's a couple of different technologies there too, but like, is that how fast or disruptive is a deployment there? Yeah, again, we're looking at just months to, you know, procure the devices and install them and, and have them operational. So really fast, I guess is the short answer. And same with topology optimization. That's just installing software or are there physical changes you have to do to do that? No, yeah, no physical changes. Installing software and then training your your staff to use it. Right. So again, really fast. Which is a, a no small thing. So <laughs> do we have any... Like, you know, these are pretty, it's a diverse set of technologies. And as you say, every installation will be different since every sort of line is somewhat different. Every sort of grid system is different, et cetera. But has, have we, has anyone modeled sort of the cumulative possibility here, the cumulative effect that could have, say, if like every U.S. utility got religion on this and went out and installed GETS, on all their systems and all their lines. Do we have any idea sort of the cumulative effect that that could have? Yeah, as you can imagine, they're somewhat complicated to model because yeah. we're looking at dynamic conditions. But the Brattle Group back in 2021 did a great study called Unlocking the Q. And so they used the Kansas and Oklahoma grids as a little case study, medium-sized case study. And they looked at the interconnection queue as it stood. They looked at planned upgrades they looked at weather snapshots, and then they looked at GETS deployments. So where can we optimally use GETS to increase transmission capacity? And they found that if they didn't install any GETS, the Kansas and Oklahoma grids could sustain 2.6 gigawatts of new wind and solar generation using traditional planning approaches. And then with GETS, you double that. We would have room for 5.2 gigawatts of new renewable generation without any other grid upgrades. That's which two states again? Kansas and Oklahoma. Ah, very windy states. <laughs> so you could double, you could install double the clean energy with GETS, basically, than without, is what they found. Right, right. And, and this was a pretty conservative study. We did not allow any import-export changes. So that really limits the value. And so... I feel great about this result. <laughs> um, and the, the total installation of GETS would have cost $90 million. And the production cost savings just from having that cheaper generation available would be $175 million a year. And then there are other benefits. There are jobs, there are lease benefits for the community. So 90 total to install it and then $175 million of savings per year from then on. Exactly. And presumably that will filter down to consumers. That will lower costs for consumers at the end of the line. What does it do uh, to reliability? Has that been sort of studied or modeled? Yeah, that's a little harder to quantify, but we have some ideas for sure. Basically, if you can see how your system is performing and you have options for how to respond to changes, that is a net improvement on reliability right? Uh, you have awareness, you have flexibility, and you can improve your resilience and reliability. And then also I mentioned case studies of advanced power flow control, saving money during an outage. Topology optimization has also been demonstrated to, for instance, save $40 million over a nine-month outage. So when you're dealing with contingencies and outages, these tools can help you do that at lower cost and, and with more optionality. All right. So this brings us then 
to the $61 million question or whatever the term is, the big question, which is if we have in the U.S. right now huge problems with grid congestion that is blocking the build out of clean energy that we all say we want and that, in fact, we're plowing tens of billions of dollars into and there's a solution on the table that gets us considerably more transmission capacity quickly at relatively low cost compared to building more transmission, what the hell? (laughs) 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 Why, Why aren't utilities, why aren't RTOs and ISOs, why aren't states and state legislatures, why isn't everyone beating down the door to put these on. It just seems like an interim solution that takes the pressure off of all our current problems relatively cheaply. So like, what am I missing here? Why Why is there resistance? Why are there not laws to, you know, <laughs> mandating these things? Like, why are utilities resisting at all? What is the, let's start with utilities. Why aren't utilities doing more of this? Uh, Well, very big question. And I'll start by saying you're doing your part because one of the big barriers is just awareness that planners and utility executives and regulators and stakeholders don't know that these technologies are available. They don't understand the benefits. And so, you know, I'm out here trying to to tell the story and share examples. (laughs) And that's an issue and just general inertia. I mean, it's kind of their business to know these things, isn't it? I have... (laughs) <laughs> limited sympathy for that. But okay, so they're Fair not enough. they're not aware. I guess here's here's what I'm I'm obliquely getting at, which, you know, regular Volts listeners will roll their eyes as I harp on this all the time. But you know, I'm not telling you anything. The utilities, the basic utility model is they make money by spending money. Mm-hmm. They make money by deploying large physical assets and getting a guaranteed rate of return on them. So if you're telling them we can, with something that is super cheap and doesn't involve deploying much money, get you more capacity out of what you already have and avoid the need for you to deploy a bunch of big physical infrastructure, basically, you're telling them you're going to reduce their profits. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's the same story behind energy efficiency and distributed energy and everything else. Anything that reduces the need for utilities to spend money and deploy physical infrastructure is going to be resisted by utilities. Is that, I mean, I'm just assuming that's one of the dynamics at work here. Uh, yeah. I, I want to be a little nicer to the utilities and say, uh, <laughs> you know, these, these aren't going to make them money. It's they're, they're going to have to do like, like you said, this is a really small capital expenditure and it's a change in their operations and processes. So Right. It's not a money-making opportunity. I think, and I've been working on GET since 2019, that there's been a a shift Hmm. that uh, utilities realize they're going to have the opportunity to build as much transmission as ratepayers will pay for. Right. This is a transmission (laughs) building era. Right. Not like there's going to be a shortage of demand, even if you deploy GETs. It's still going to be building as much transmission as you can. Right. It's it. A lot of our grid was built 70 years ago. It's time to replace things. We need large interregional transmission. There's going to be a lot of transmission built. So I believe and hope that utilities are seeing that they need to be showing that they're maximizing their infrastructure. That said, they can't be blamed for doing things the same way as they have for, for decades. So they're going to be risk averse. 
They have this lower returns on lower capital expenditures. And historically, they're only responsible for reliability planning. They're only responsible for building transmission to deal with reliability issues. And that goes back to the history of thermal generation when that was all we needed to get a good system. But in the future, we need to plan for reliability and clean energy integration and customer cost savings because at the end of the day, the utilities need to demonstrate to FERC that their rates are just and reasonable. And economic transmission planning is going to be a part of that. You know, you say you can't blame utilities. I Maybe <laughs> you can't. I can blame them a little bit. But like, how could they be induced to do it? Because in one obvious way is, you know, they're under legal obligation to have just and reasonable rates. And I think if you're a ratepayer advocate or a state regulator, you could reasonably say it is not just and reasonable to ignore giant cost-saving reliability boosting <laughs> opportunities that it's both unjust and unreasonable. So therefore you have to do it. Are, are people trying to do that through rate cases? FERC is working on that. FERC is looking at a few different models for grid enhancing technologies. So one sort of big picture way to think about it is requirements versus incentives. And they're both a little bit tricky when it comes to grid enhancing technologies. So For requirements, one model that FERC is thinking about is a threshold, where if you have a certain amount of congestion every year on your line, then you have to look at dynamic line ratings. And, you know, that's good. It's simple and clear, but there are still loopholes when it comes to a requirement. Uh, There's no transparency, really, around transmission constraints. So if a utility comes back and says, well, actually, there's, there's some other limiting elements, so dynamic line ratings don't help. We're not sure that a requirement will be the most effective model, but it it would lead to more deployments in certain cases. So that's one good approach. And the other is an incentive, which would drive the utility, say it was based on congestion cost savings. Um, It would drive the utility to look for those most congested lines and try to solve the problem with really low cost solutions if they were getting compensated based on the net savings, for instance. Right. I mean, those make sense to me, although I'll just register one last time and then I'll let it go. (laughs) It's a little crazy that you have to bully or force or beg or incent utilities to do cheap things that could save a crap load of money. Like (laughs) like this, you know, this is like we come around to this in the clean energy world again and again and again. Like, why are we begging utilities to do these things? Like, it's insane that their incentive is not to have the best service at the cheapest possible rate. Like it's insane that they have to be browbeaten to do these things. Well, I mentioned that Belgium is really far ahead on dynamic line ratings. And in 2021, someone from the Belgian transmission system operator testified to FERC. And he said that 10 years ago when they were installing dynamic line ratings, the utility engineers were resistant. I think he said they looked at him like he was crazy but that now whenever they run into congestion, they immediately go to dynamic line ratings. So as much as we want a a fast and transformative transition, you know, these things take time, but I I feel like we're going to follow in Belgium's bold footsteps. (laughs) Well, what about um, PUCs? What about uh, state regulators? Like presumably they could be made aware of these things and they could push. Are they doing so? Yeah, the... Joint Federal-State Task Force on Electric Transmission, which is a group of 10 
PUC commissioners from around the country and then also FERC commissioners met in July and discussed grid enhancing technologies. That was their agenda for two and a half hours. And it was a really great discussion. Lots of great ideas from state commissioners in terms of how gets should be deployed, the barriers, et cetera. So that was super promising. And then they can take various actions. So for one thing, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act came with $14 billion of formula and competitive grants from the DOE that grid enhancing technologies would be eligible for. So Mm. for the formula grants, every state is allocated a certain amount of money and they can propose the projects and a use for that money. And then the DOE sends them that money. Uh, And then for the competitive grants, states and utilities and nonprofit utilities, for-profit utilities, there's different grants for different entities, but they can, again, propose a grid enhancing technology deployment and have it Many of the programs have a 50% cost match, for instance, and that could include that workforce training that I talked about. So Mm. these are really low cost devices, obviously, maybe the 50% cost sure isn't huge there. But if you're doing that first deployment and you have to update your systems and you have to train your staff, then maybe that cost share is is more meaningful. And, And certainly for nonprofit utilities that are on shoestring or relatively shoestring budgets, that sort of savings should be really significant. So that's $14 billion in the Infrastructure Act, not specifically for grid-enhancing technologies, but for which grid-enhancing technologies are eligible. Right. And if you generalize that Brattle study that I talked about with the $90 million of GETS deployment, you know, roughly over the country, we would expect $2.7 billion to deploy GETS optimally <laughs> over, over the whole the whole network. So we don't need $14 billion, um, <laughs> but we're not going to get it also. So, Yeah, I know this is the crazy thing. It's so cheap that like dumping money on it is almost beside the point. Like it's so cheap already that whatever the problem is, it's not money, right? <laughs> it's not money being available. Are there other federal programs in place that are attempting to juice gets along? Like I know uh, the DOE has all these, has a gajillion different grant programs and I know the loan programs office is getting involved in nascent technologies and there's all these different programs. Are there other pieces of federal policy that are aimed at this? I want to say no, but I could be forgetting something. I will say that (laughs) there are national lab groups working on grid enhancing technologies in different ways. There's a sort of separate funding for demonstration projects, for instance, for utilities. So again, sort of targeted at deploying your first project, right? Because that's the expensive one, Mm -hmm. that's the hard one. And then the ball is rolling. So grants in the Infrastructure Act, and then there's this meeting of PUC commissioners that are getting behind it. What about FERC? You mentioned FERC is doing some things. FERC, uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, for those who don't know that by now. What's FERC doing on this? It seems like it ought to have a key role here. Yeah, so two recent FERC orders included GETS, so Order 881, uh, which was about managing transmission line ratings, required utilities to use the ambient adjusted ratings, and then for RTOs to prepare their systems to accept dynamic line ratings. And some RTOs already can. For instance, PJM is set up based on that uh, PPL deployment I talked about. Uh, But all the RTOs have to be able to accept DLR by 2025. So that's a good start. 
in what way are they not currently ready? Like, what does that mean to get to get ready? Like, if you're just going to go clip a LiDAR onto your transmission tower, like, what does it mean to get ready for that? Well, you have to be able to accept forecasted line ratings, and those will mm. change, right? So when the RTO is deciding which generators are going to be dispatched, and they are going to use the dynamic forecasted line rating to do that dispatch, you know, that's a, that's a change. Right. So it could change their planning, their sort of integrated planning, do you think? Uh, that's an operational change, I would say, in, in terms of how they're dispatching generation. And you could talk to people who will make it sound really hard. <laughs> I hope it's not as hard as some people make it sound. Uh, but I, I think it's doable, especially by July 2025. And that's FERC 881. You said there's another one? Yeah. So Order 2023, which was about interconnection, uh, requires the evaluation of alternative transmission technologies in interconnection processes. Mm. It leaves a lot of discretion currently to the transmission owners in terms of how they're used. And we've seen other processes in the U.S. that leave a lot of discretion to the transmission owners. And that means you get uneven results. Yeah, I was going to say I was reading your reports and it sounds like in a lot of cases, like the case was presented to the transmission owner, you know, with all the information you've told me, it seems like an obvious, no regrets, easy win. And then they just don't do it and don't explain why. That's sort of one of the things that was mysterious to me. Like, what is, <laughs> is that just inertia? Is that just habit? Um I mean, they don't explain, so you obviously can't explain. answer that question, <laughs> but it is, it is mysterious. Yeah, I mean, one example that I have from a renewable energy developer is that there was a 1% line overload identified in the interconnection study between RTO seams. And as we talked about, DLR is going to fix the 1% line overload almost all the time, just because the static rating is so, so conservative, right? It right. doesn't have to be a very windy place. So the upgrade that was identified in this case was $400 million to fix that 1% <laughs> overload. And the TO would refuse to consider DLR. So. That's just wild, as opposed to like a buck fifty. <laughs> yeah, I, I really don't get that. I, I guess the positive story you could tell is it's just habit and culture and that that will change over time as these things starting to get deployed and are more familiar. Is there something obvious that you would like FERC to do that it's not doing? Oh, yeah. I've got a list. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's got their FERC list. Oh, yeah. Wish list. So they've got their notice of proposed rulemaking on transmission planning. We hope they go a little further than they went in the interconnection rule in terms of requiring the use of GETs in transmission planning. Mm -hmm. They have the threshold requirement that I was talking about for requiring the study and implementation of dynamic line readings, for instance, if there's a certain amount of congestion on a line. Right. Uh, and then incentives. FERC was tasked by Congress, I think about 20 years ago, <laughs> um, <laughs> to create electric transmission incentives policy and for transmission technologies. And FERC did a workshop about performance-based rate making approaches. That's that you know, for instance, cost savings, utilities getting compensated based on the savings they enable. Yes. Um, but that hasn't moved much since 2021. And then also transparency, because uh, grid users and, and stakeholders don't have the information that we would need to understand 
what the potential is. FPP gave a lot of information to the Brattle Group to undertake that that study I talked about. But generally, you know, if, if you ask PJM how many lines see $2 million of congestion a year, they might tell you that, but they might not have on hand what's causing that congestion. So this transparency question is big, and FERC started getting into that with the transmission planning and cost management work with the Joint Task Force. They had a technical conference where they brought up the idea of a transmission monitor. So that's also interesting to us. Is there a role here for sort of just the public, you know, just advocates? Like, is there anything... I mean, all of this seems kind of technical and it's all being sort of hashed out by these technical bodies and these, you know, working groups and federal agencies. Is there any role here for sort of just public advocacy for the public to get involved? Yeah, why not? Um, (laughs) There are some legislators who've proposed, uh, like federal legislators who proposed legislation around grid enhancing technologies. So uh, Mm. Senator Martin Heinrich has legislation to include gets in a transmission tax credit. Representative Kathy Castor has a bill on including gets in interconnection. There's been some movement since that was introduced, but um, there's federal legislation that can be pushed for. And also, you know, the federal Congress oversees FERC to some degree um, and has conversations with them. So your congressperson can always push FERC to act on these issues. Leader Schumer wrote a letter to Chair Phillips at FERC uh, in late July asking him to move on the guest proceedings. So pressure on legislators is good. And uh, let the public utility commissions know that you're looking for more efficient use of the existing transmission infrastructure as well. And state policymakers too, state legislators, they can all call on the utilities to embrace these tools. And part of the barrier, not, not the most significant barrier, but part of the barrier is that utilities don't want questions about why they're using this new technology. <laughs> so if they're getting if they're getting their state regulators and legislators telling them to use these technologies, that's one less thing for them to worry about. Yeah, this does seem like one of the areas of policy where states are a little more movable and it, like good things might get going in states and then work their way up to the federal level. That's sort of been the, the path of most good policy, energy policy in the last decade or so. Final question. You say these things have been around for a while. They're getting better, but they've been around for a while. Who who in the U.S., if anyone, is actually using them? And then part two of the question is, who in the world is using them? Where are these things actually in use? Yeah, so GETS have been piloted by dozens of utilities in the United States. Mm, love their pilots. <laughs> yeah, that's the good news. I mean, since the late 90s, dynamic line ratings story goes way back. <laughs> so they're out there. Like I said, the first operational use of DLR just recently, but uh, even, you know, power flow control, for instance, has been used. There's this great story um, a transmission engineer told me about. They were going to have to, for, to interconnect a, a generator. They were going to have to rebuild a line in case of an outage, right? You, you have to plan for N minus one, like something going out, some contingency. So they were going to have to rebuild a line for that. Instead, they were able to install a power flow controller and the power flow controller was never used. That contingency never happened. (laughs) But just by putting in this device, you didn't have to do this whole big rebuild that would have, you know, not given that benefit. 
So that's an example. I saw on your map that Europe is covered in these things. Yeah, lots of dynamic line readings in Eastern Europe, for sure, Southern Eastern Europe, Belgium, the UK. So in, nas- in the UK, National Grid has a incentive regulation that, A, gives them funding for innovation. So if they're using mm. a new technology, there's that initial support. And then they also have incentives for saving money through innovation. So when they install those advanced powerful controllers that create half a billion dollars in savings, they're getting compensated for that in a way that when the National Grid US does it, they don't get compensated directly like that. Mm. But it's great that National Grid US and UK have some knowledge sharing and, and National Grid US is one of the more ambitious utilities in terms of gets, I think, partially because of that. Well, this is all super interesting, Julia. I just think it's so important for people in this world, in the energy world, to know that transmission is a bear. It's a difficult problem. It's the difficult problem. But we're not just stuck waiting for new lines to get built, right? We're not just stuck waiting for these interminably slow processes to go forward. There's tons of stuff we can do now with these existing technologies to move things forward reduce costs, get more clean energy on the grid, et cetera, et cetera. It's available now. And so people, you know, when they're pounding the table about transmission, they should add this to their, <laughs> you know, add this to their arsenal. Like, you know, you can act now. There is something to do now about all this. Mm-hmm. So thank you for coming and uh, sharing the good news with us. Thanks so much. And yeah, we're, we're just sitting on all this dormant capacity. It's untapped. Right. So once we start using these technologies, suddenly we open up these these lines and these circuits to carry so much more for us. And then when we're planning the future grid, we can consider these technologies, too, and make sure that we're building the line that's that's the most useful to the system because we have all this other flexibility and and extra capacity. So we, we shouldn't be making planning decisions based on the assumption that the grid is a static asset. Yes. Certainly. So, yeah, really exciting technologies. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's Volts wtf so that i can continue doing this work thank you so much and i'll see you next time